Okay, praise the Lord and good evening. We're continuing our Bible study in 2 Peter, which we have entitled Growing in Grace and Truth. And the notes and recordings of previous studies are all available at our church website, and that is new-life-ministries.org. If you are following along in those notes, we're on page 25 tonight, and I'll give just a quick review uh, to bring us up to date here. We're now in the second chapter of 2 Peter. Uh, it's a short little epistle, but I think it's very important for a number of reasons. Uh, it addresses a number of things which we are now witnessing in the world today. And I really do believe that Second Peter is kind of a last days epistle. And as we've been mentioning, it was written at the very end of Peter's life. And I think his final words to the church would be of great importance to us all to study carefully. And we saw in Second Peter 1, he gave... A, a very encouraging and uplifting message about knowing Christ and knowing the truth of Scripture and you know growing in grace growing in truth growing in our knowledge of God and we've been now in the second chapter of second Peter and the entire second chapter deals with the subject of false teachers and false prophets. And as we've been mentioning repeatedly, this is not a small or a minor problem. It has always been a major problem, both in the Old Testament, in the early church, and certainly in these last days. And we concluded last time looking at 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 9, in which Peter takes three examples from the Old Testament to make a very powerful point. And basically his point was, God, even though he often delays his judgment, his judgment for sin and for wickedness is absolutely certain. And he gave three examples. He talked about angels that sinned, he talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he talked about Noah and the Great Flood. And it's interesting that two of those three examples were used on several occasions by Jesus when he was referring to the last days. He said it would be like it was in the days of Noah, and it would be like it was in the days of Lot, in the last days. And those same two examples Peter used to show not only is God's judgment absolutely certain on wickedness and ungodliness, but he also made a second point, that God knows how to rescue or deliver the godly out of temptations and out of wickedness. In the case of Noah... Noah and his family boarded the ark and they were saved out of the great flood. 
in the case of Lot, he was saved before the fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels actually took him out, rescued him from that place. And so the end of this whole section I want to finish with tonight, but let me read this uh, final portion again to you. Uh, from Second Peter 2. Actually, I'm going to read from verse 4 all the way to 9 again. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. The point we saw last time in these three cases, the rebellious angels that sinned, uh, the ungodly world in Noah's day, and the perverse cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, in all three cases it says God did not spare them. And I think it, it's good for us to understand God is good. God is love. God is merciful. God is patient. But God does not look the other way. He sees wickedness and ungodliness. And the only reason that he delays his judgment and his punishment is to give us time to repent. In the end, if we refuse to repent, there's only one certain thing awaiting us. And that's what Peter talks about here, God's judgment. He did not spare them. He will not spare the world we live in either. Right now, he's giving us a space of time to repent. But in the case of the angels, they were proud, they were rebellious against God. God will judge them. In the case of the world in Noah's day, we saw that it was characterized by wickedness, corruption, and violence. And surely we can see how we are in the last days. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. We are witnessing unprecedented violence almost daily now. We're hearing of shootings, beheadings, whole villages being slaughtered. It's unbelievable, the violent spirit that has swept over the earth. It is not a coincidence or an accident. It's a sign. Jesus said we should be looking for these signs. 
And we should also understand that just as God judged the world in Noah's day, He will judge this world. But right now, there is still a space of time for people to repent. God's mercy is still available to those who will turn to Christ. Remember, the only safe place in Noah's day was inside the ark. The only safe place in our day is in Christ. Christ is the ark of safety. He is the only place of salvation. We need to run to Jesus Christ for our salvation and for our safety. Sadly, in Noah's day, only eight people were saved out of the flood. And Jesus made it very clear there will only be a few that find this narrow road to salvation. Nevertheless, it's available to everyone. And finally, we ended looking at the third example, that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Without any doubt, we can clearly identify the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not going to go there, but you can read about it in Genesis chapter 19. It was homosexual perversion. These two cities, and if you study the story carefully, even cities around them were given to this spirit of homosexual perversion. And again, let me remind you, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the last days. It's no accident that we're seeing unprecedented uh, perversion sweep over America and many of the other nations of the world, where it's very likely in the near future uh, we will have 30 of the 50 states in America now endorsing so-called gay marriage. And this thing is everywhere now in our society and in our culture. But we must pay close attention not to the media, not to the president or the White House or the Congress or the politicians, but we must pay very close attention to the Word of God. Peter pointed out very clearly here that God made Sodom and Gomorrah an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So when God sent fire and burning sulfur and turned Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he wasn't just judging the sin of those cities. He was setting an example for all people everywhere in the future to pay attention to and hopefully to be warned. Let me read to you again this verse from Jude. Remember Jude and Second Peter go hand in hand. And Jude verse 7 reads as follows. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, notice that, it wasn't just those two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And 
Note again the words that Peter uses in the passage that we just read. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen, not what might happen, what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the, and note these words carefully, filthy lives. The people in Sodom and Gomorrah were living ungodly lives. They were living filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man, Lot, living among them, was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. And we're being bombarded almost on a daily basis now with propaganda from every level in our culture that we are supposed to accept this kind of filthy, perverse, ungodly behavior as normal, as acceptable, as something that's perfectly fine. We need to keep getting our minds renewed in the Word of God lest we start compromising with this propaganda of the world. God's treatment of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example. Let me go over this word again. In the Greek, it means an exhibit. This was something that God was putting on display. It was an exhibit for imitation or for warning. In, in this case... <clears throat> in this case, it was obviously a warning. An exhibit or warning to warn those who would follow in their footsteps. And all of the politicians and gay activists and people who are pushing this agenda... I would strongly recommend that they go read Genesis 19 in its entirety and see how their political correctness lines up with the Word of God. And we're living in a time of unprecedented immorality, not just homosexual immorality, but sexual depravity and impurity of every kind. Make no mistake, if we do not repent for these sins, God will judge. And I'm going to read this quote again. You've probably heard it. A lot of people attribute it to Billy Graham, but it was actually his wife, Ruth Graham, who spoke these words. Quote, If God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. End quote. Well, uh, sorry to break the news to you, but God's not going to apologize to anyone. He doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't change his mind after he's judged. And the judgment that came on Sodom and Gomorrah is a strong warning to nations like America that are going down this deadly, dangerous road further and further away from God's truth and God's word. Now, I want to pick it up 
tonight on page 27 in the notes, if you're following there, we, we read just now in 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, something else that we haven't looked at yet, concerning Lot. It says that if God rescued Lot, remember He rescues the righteous out of these situations. He rescued Noah and his family out of the flood. He rescued Lot out of Sodom before it burned. But it goes on to say, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. The King James uses the word vexed. His soul was vexed by all the filth, all the wickedness, all the perversion that was going on around him. The the word in Greek literally means worn out or wearied. It was something that was just wearing on Lot's soul day after day. And it goes on to say he was tormented. That word literally means tortured. His, his spirit was being affected by the things that were going on around him. Vexed, wearied, worn out, tormented, tortured by the filthy conduct and the lawless deeds of those around him that he saw and heard. I have a question tonight. Why aren't more people distressed about the direction that nations like America are heading in? Why aren't more of the people in the churches distressed by this blatant immoral behavior, blatant perversion in the culture. And if we're not careful, we can become desensitized and actually begin to think, well, you know, I guess we need to accept and tolerate and uh, kind of embrace this now as part of the new norm. I'm sorry, but Lot never accepted it. He never tolerated it. It bothered him. It bothered him greatly. And I don't know about you, I am greatly bothered by the direction that our culture is headed in. It distresses me. It torments me in my spirit when I hear and see all of these filthy, perverse, lawless, immoral things that are going on around me in the culture. And here's here's the thing we have to be especially careful of. In Romans chapter 1, and we're not going to go through all of that again, but you can study the chapter yourself, and you see this downward spiral into depravity, where God gave them over to lust, He gave them over to uh, sexual passions and immorality, and finally He gave them over 
to homosexuality. Well, the last stage there, he gave them over to a depraved mind. But it goes on to say something about the culture and how they would approve of their depraved conduct. And this is where I think we are now in our culture. And the final verse in Romans 1, I want to read verse 32. It says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, and here's the part I want to highlight, but also approve of those who practice them. You see, there's great pressure coming from the culture, even upon Christians now, to approve of this behavior. Be careful, because Paul warns us, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. God has not called us to approve of sin. He's called us to repent from sin, and He's called us to preach the good news of the gospel to those around us who are trapped in sin, and to tell them there's still time. You can repent. You can come out of darkness into His marvelous light. You can come to the cross, and the blood of Jesus will wash you from all of your uncleanness. We saw last time in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul refers to the sexually immoral, to male prostitutes, to homosexual offenders, he says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, but that is what some of you were. Past tense. They had people in the Corinthian church who were ex-homosexuals, but they had been washed, sanctified, justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. If you're hearing my voice tonight, there's still hope for you. You can still repent. I don't care what the devil's told you, that you were born like that, or you're never going to change. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We can repent. Anyone can repent and turn to God right now and receive mercy, washing, cleansing, sanctifying, justifying, all through the precious and powerful blood of Jesus Christ. But, we should pay close attention to Lot's attitude to the culture that surrounded him. He did not approve of it. He was not tolerant of it. Matter of fact, it was affecting him greatly. He was tormented by the filth and the lawlessness around him. And in Genesis 19, you don't need to turn there, but I would recommend reading the whole chapter on your own if you're not familiar with it. But when the men of Sodom literally surrounded Lot's house, and they, the men, insisted on having sex with the two angels that had entered Lot's house, he rebuked them 
saying, and this is a direct quote from Genesis 19.7, don't do this wicked thing. Politicians should read that. Don't do this wicked thing. So, Lot was very bold in denouncing the perversion that was going on in his culture and never is there any indication that he approved of it. He uh, agreed that it was fine for them to live like that, that that was normal. No, don't do this wicked thing. There is something puzzling about the story of Lot, and I'll just touch on this briefly. We read in Second Peter that Lot was a righteous man. He was distressed by their lawlessness, tormented by their filth. And Peter doesn't say anything negative about Lot. He sounds like a real saint. However, when you read the story in Genesis 19, there's something that's a little bit difficult to sort of accept or understand. And I'll, I'll try to give a little bit of an explanation. I'm not sure that even this fully answers the question, but it's a little difficult to understand how Lot could be so distressed about the perversion that was going on around him, how he could be called a righteous man, and yet, if you remember the story, he offered to turn his two daughters over to all of those townsmen who were inflamed with lust that wanted to have sex with the two men. They thought they were two men, they were actually angels. How could Lot ever think of doing such a thing? Here, take my two daughters. Do with them whatever you want. There's only one explanation that I have found that's somewhat helpful. It's still a bit troubling, but uh, one possible explanation, we have to understand the culture of Lot's day and how important hospitality to any house guest was. When you took someone into your house, it was like they were more important than anyone else. And you were responsible to care for them, to protect them, so forth and so on. So one possible explanation is that not only did Lot have these two men, house guests, but perhaps he discerned that there was something divine about them. I don't know. It says he bowed down before them. He called them lords, and he insisted on serving them, taking them into his house. Whether or not he fully understood that they were angels or not, I don't know. I don't think you can prove that one way or another, but possibly he discerned something angelic or something divine about these two individuals but even if he didn't even if he he just thought they were two important men there was a certain code of honor 
in Israel in that time in which Lot lived where if you took guests into your house uh, it was a very serious responsibility before God to protect them. Does that fully justify him offering his two daughters to all these crazed men outside? No, not at all. But in Genesis 19.8, here's what Lot says. Don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Seems to go along with that understanding that there was some sort of a solemn responsibility that Lot had to see that these men were protected from whatever was going on outside. It's still troubling to me that he was offering to give his two virgin daughters to this crowd of maniacs surrounding his house. Nevertheless, it didn't happen. God rescued Lot. God rescued the daughters and gave them an angelic escort out of that place before the fire began to fall. I want to read to you a passage from the New Testament that I think describes the culture in which we find ourselves today and what our attitude needs to be. And we can learn a few lessons, I think, from Lot by the way he conducted himself in such a filthy, fallen culture like Sodom and Gomorrah that was ripe for God's judgment. And I believe America is ripe for God's judgment. And the only reason judgment hasn't been fully unleashed on this country is because of the Christians who are here, because of the fasting, the prayers... Um, the corporate um, intercession that is still going up before God, and God is delaying only to give people more time to repent, not to look the other way and say, oh, that's okay, I approve of your behavior. And we must understand that we're living on borrowed time here in the United States. And sooner or later, if there isn't a major turning from all this filth and wickedness, we're going to see progressively more and more severe judgments coming upon this land. And we're seeing some of it already. We're seeing things happening that I believe are uh, manifestations of God's displeasure and God's judgment on this country. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 14 to 16 and I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, and here's what I want you to notice, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's where, that's where Lot found himself, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. How do we live as Christians in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation like that that we are now seeing in America? Well, here's what he says. 
do all things without grumbling or disputing, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, have nothing to do with their filthy deeds, be above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and then, here it is, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. So, what God is calling us to is in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation to shine as lights and hold fast to the word of life. Don't compromise. Hold on to the word of God. Preach the word of God. Live the word of God. Cling on to the word of God and keep shining in the midst of the darkness. And the scripture that always encourages me, where sin abounds, and it is abounding in America now, where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. It, it super abounds. It abounds above and beyond all of the sin. So be encouraged tonight. The more gay marriage and the more immorality and the more drunkenness and drug addiction and violence and, and perversion we see in our culture, there's a greater grace available to you and me. Let's get filled with the grace of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Hold on to the Word of God. Preach the Word of God without any compromise, without any watering down of the truth and stand firm as blameless, innocent children of God above reproach. We must be careful that we don't get stained, defiled by the culture around us. That's the whole concept of being sanctified. There's a, there's a dividing line between us and the world. Jesus said, we are in the world, we're not of it. Sadly, much of the church in America today, it is trying with all of its strength to imitate the world, to dress like the world, sing like the world, talk like the world, and look like the world. We should be doing just the opposite. We should be different, separate, distinct from the world. We sing different, we talk different, we look different, we are different, because we are not of the world. Sadly, we're still in it, and I'm going to be honest with you, I am ready to get out of here. I am looking forward to that day that Jesus says, come up, your job is done, because my home is not down here, my eyes, my affection on things above. Don't become a part of this crooked, fallen, perverse world. Come out from among them, Paul says, and be separate. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Finally, to finish up this section, in verse 9, Peter emphasizes not only 
does God know how to punish the wicked, the angels, the world in Noah's day, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he also knows how to rescue. God always makes a way of escape. And it's interesting that when Jesus was talking about his return and the rapture, that he should use these same two examples, Noah and Lot. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. As it was in the days of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what happened? Judgment fell on the wicked, and the righteous escaped. What was Jesus trying to say? The same thing is about to happen again. Fierce, fiery judgment is about to fall on this world. But there's an escape that God has planned first for the righteous. It's called the rapture. And we are actually waiting for our escape. The Bible says we're going to escape and stand before the Son of Man before that time of unprecedented tribulation and judgment falls on the world. Some people kind of mock that and say, oh, you guys who believe in a rapture, you're just escapists. You want to escape. And I'm like, you're right. I absolutely want to escape. When I read the book of Revelation, and it talks about stinging scorpions and demons and 100-pound hailstones falling on the earth and a fourth of mankind being slaughtered and put to death, you better believe I want to escape. If Jesus says, I can watch and pray and get my life in order now so that I can escape and be with him, so be it. I'm going for it. And that's what Peter is saying. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly out of temptations, trials, adversity, and certainly out of judgment. Paul is very clear on this in 1 Thessalonians. God has not appointed us to wrath. He's appointed us to salvation. The appointment that's on the calendar for you and for me is not judgment. It's not tribulation. Our appointment is salvation through Jesus Christ. It's to be caught up into the heavens to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So, there is a group of people in the earth that are separate from all this perversion, all this defilement and uncleanness. They are looking for the soon return of Jesus Christ because that's their ticket out. That's their escape. And the Lord knows how to provide a means of escape. In Psalm 34, 19, there's a verse that many are familiar with. It says, A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. My favorite word delivers him from them all. The Lord knows how to deliver us, but it also says He knows how to hold, note that word, to hold the wicked 
for judgment. Let me read this whole verse again. 2 Peter 2, verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials, and He knows how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. That word hold means to guard, watch, keep an eye on, or to prevent from escaping. Very interesting. You have two groups. One group is going to escape. That's the godly. The other group, God is watching them. He's guarding them to make sure no one escapes. Our only escape is through repentance and coming to the cross of Jesus Christ. All others are being guarded, watched, and prevented from escaping. You know, there's a quote, I don't know where this came from, but it's pretty commonly quoted. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. What does that mean? Well, God doesn't always strike a person dead minutes after their crime. There are many people roaming the earth today that have gotten away with murder. Does that mean God looked the other way? Oh no. No, 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 no. A lot of people have gotten away with a lot of stuff so far. But Peter is making this point because he's now going to return again to his main theme in chapter 2, that being false teachers and false prophets. And his point is, they often seem to be able to get away with murder for a long time. They build up multi-million dollar corporations and big ministries with TV stations and money and millions of followers and they seem to be prospering but his point is not so fast their judgment is not sleeping God is not asleep he knows what's going on and though he's very patient that's a theme here in second Peter God waits patiently but eventually his patience runs out if people refuse to repent. And the wheels of justice, they turn slowly. Sometimes it takes a long time for things to catch up with people, but they grind exceedingly fine. It means no one gets away with anything. That's why, again, you and I should run to the cross run to Jesus with all of our sins, all of our wickedness, repent, confess everything to Him, and receive cleansing, receive forgiveness, and know that we know that we know that we're safe inside the ark, which is Jesus Christ. I want to introduce the next section of Second Peter and I'm sure we're not going to be able to finish this tonight, but I just want to start uh, another short section here. 
of 2 Peter 2, verses 10 to 12. Now he's coming back around to specifically talking about these false teachers, false leaders, false prophets. Verses 10 to 12. This is especially true, remember he's tying this to what we just finished, about judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts, they too will perish. You know, some people are amazed that there are are words like this in the New Testament. This is strong stuff. This is New Testament. This isn't Jeremiah or Ezekiel. This is Peter. And these are strong words. Brute beasts, caught and destroyed, they're going to perish. These are strong words that Peter is speaking. And as I've pointed out in several other studies, God is good, God is kind, God is merciful, but when it comes to false leaders, teachers who are leading other people astray into damnation and destruction, oh man, God's judgment for them is severe. And the words that you find Peter and John and Paul use in their epistles when it comes to this group of people, very, very strong language. Now, Let's just kind of outline this, and then we're going to look at it in more detail next time. Let me recall to your attention a very important verse that we're going to keep coming back to in Matthew 7, where Jesus spoke about false prophets. He said, by their fruits you will recognize them. Not by their gifts not by their prophecies, not by their miracles, not by how rich they are, how famous they are, how big of a following they have. And we often put a lot of attention on those things, don't we? Ooh, he has a church of 5,000 or 50,000. And they have, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And they have, you know, TV stations and radio stations and on and on and on and on and on. Jesus says that doesn't mean a hill of beans. Look at their fruits. Examine their life. That's what he's saying. Look at their life. Look at their conduct. Look at their character. And I'll guarantee you, every false teacher, every false prophet can be recognized fairly quickly when you do that. If you look at their real lifestyle, 
Look at the character of the man or the woman. It'll emerge fairly quickly that they're not the same person off the stage that they are on the stage. And we begin to realize that there's a major disconnect between the TV personality and the real person. First thing Peter points out here in verse 10 is they are corrupt and they follow the desires of the sinful nature. He says this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature. And it's amazing when you take a fairly close look at a lot of these false teachers and false leaders, one of the first things that emerges is they are given to unbridled lust, carnality, usually some kind of sexual uncleanness or perversion. It's one of the first things that you can find when you look closely at their lives. Oh, they preach marvelous sermons. They sing like angels. Oh, they are full of charisma and gifts and miracles and marvelous things happen. Wherever they go, people are slain in the Spirit and the dead are raised and marvelous things happen. But they're living like animals. Unbridled lust, carnality, and uncleanness. Let me read to you this verse in a couple of the other translations. I'm going to read first from the Amplified. It says, particularly those who walk after the flesh and indulge in the lust of polluting passion. First thing you should look for, how carnal are they? How much are they indulging in the flesh and in the lusts of polluting passions. The Message Bible says this, God is especially incensed against these, quote, teachers who live by lust, addicted to a filthy existence. By their fruits you will know them and recognize them. Look at their lifestyle. Are they really spiritual? Or are they carnal? Are they given to carnal passions, carnal lusts, and so forth? Jude refers to this same group of people in Jude uh, 7 and 8 as dreamers that pollute their own bodies. Dreamers that pollute their own bodies. The pollution here seems to be an obvious reference because he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah seems to be a clear reference to sexual perversion some kind of sexual pollution and so the first thing that can be easily recognized in many false teachers and false prophets once you get beyond the glitter of the miracles and the money and the fame and and all of that 
is their life one of spirituality, a closeness to God, or are they given to lust, carnality, and uncleanness? The next thing we're going to look at next time, and this is where I'm, I'm going to end, is another very important sign or fruit that we need to look for. It says, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Oh boy, that's a biggie. We're going to need a whole night on that one. One of the hallmarks of every false prophet, every false teacher that I've ever known or had any contact with, they despise authority. They cannot submit to authority. And let me quickly read uh, this portion from the Amplified and from the Message Bible, and then we're going to have to end here for tonight. The Amplified first. False teachers scorn and despise authority, presumptuous and daring, self-willed and self-loving creatures. They scoff at and revile dignitaries without trembling. <laughs> Interesting. Self-willed and self-loving creatures. The Message Bible reads as follows. God is especially incensed against these, quote, teachers who live by lust, addicted to a filthy existence, they despise interference from true authority. I'm going to read that again slowly. They despise interference from true authority, preferring to indulge in self-rule. Insolent egotists, they don't hesitate to speak evil against the most splendid of creatures. Let me translate that even a little more simply. They don't want anybody messing with them. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. They're their own boss. They're their own leader. And they don't want anybody correcting them. They don't want anyone telling them anything, basically. And this is a very serious problem that you find in false teachers and false prophets. And lest you and I become one of them, we better learn how to submit to authority. It says in Hebrews 13, Obey them that have the rule over you. Submit to their authority. Submit to government and civil authorities, the, the police, the law of the land, and submit to spiritual authorities, or as it says here, I like this translation in the Message Bible, they despise interference from true authority. We need to recognize true authority in the church. And this has nothing to do with church politics or church titles. Uh, titles are a dime a dozen. I'm talking about true authority. True authority only comes one way. 
it comes from being submitted to God, submitted to true authority, <clears throat> and having God's anointing upon your life. Anointing doesn't come just because you have a title or a degree or some name badge that you wear around in, in church. I, I've seen too much of this where you go to a church and after three weeks they've already made you a deacon or an elder or an assistant pastor or they call you apostle or whatever. It means nothing to me. I'm looking for true authority. And the way to recognize true authority is look for the anointing of God. And the Holy Spirit will bear witness in your spirit. If you're walking in the Spirit and living in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will bear witness with your spirit where true authority is being manifested. We need to submit to that authority as it comes from God through the Holy Spirit down through the church through apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and ultimately, <clears throat> excuse me, ultimately we're told in Ephesians, submit to one another. If you're full of the Holy Spirit, and I'm full of the Holy Spirit, I may have a word from God for you today, and tomorrow you may have a word from God for me. We need to both learn how to submit to that true authority as it comes from God. But next time we're going to go deeper into this, one of the hallmarks of every false prophet and false teacher, they despise authority. They are the authority. Nobody can tell them anything. They're self-willed, self-loving, self-ruling, as it says in the Message Bible here, insolent egotists. <laughs> They don't hesitate to speak evil about anyone. Oh, they criticize the pastor. They speak against any leader or anybody without any conviction because they're the boss. They are the only true authority in their mind's eye. But of course, it's a great deception. And unless they repent, uh, they're heaping great wrath and great judgment upon themselves because inevitably they drag others into their rebellion and cause others to also begin to despise God-ordained authority within the church. Let's stop here for tonight and let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, that bears witness with our spirit to the truth. Lord, you promise to lead us and guide us into all truth. And even when the truth hurts, we want to buy it. We want to love it. We want to embrace it, O oh God. And any areas of our life that need to come into conformity with your truth, grant us true humility, grant us true repentance, that we might turn from those things and embrace you, O oh God. Lord, I pray for everyone on this Bible study line tonight, even those that may be listening in the future through recordings. I pray, O oh God, that you would protect us from every false teacher, every deceiver, every false leader. Protect us, O oh God. And Lord, help us to humble ourselves 
to run to the cross for mercy and for cleansing. Oh God, we submit to you. We submit to your authority. We surrender our lives on the altar tonight that you may have your way in our lives. God, we don't want to be like these people we just read about. Self-willed, self-loving egotists. God, help us. Help us, oh God, to turn from all of that and to become like Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, help us to walk in true humility. Help us to walk in true holiness, separating ourselves from all of the defilement, all the perversion in the culture around us, to come out from among them to be separate and to be holy. Help us to hold on, hold fast to the word of life, to shine as lights in the midst of this darkened culture in which we now find ourselves. And Lord, keep reminding us daily that we have a glorious, blessed hope that soon and very soon we're out of here. You will make a way of escape for us just as you did for Noah, just as you did for Lot. Lord, you will make a way of escape for the righteous. God, we are looking up to you. We are putting our hope and our trust in you, O God, that when that trumpet sounds and when your voice calls us up, that we will leave this earth, we will rise to meet you in the air, and so we will ever be with our Lord. God, encourage each and every one listening tonight that that is our hope, to be with Jesus Christ. God, we know that soon fire is going to destroy this earth. Fire is going to fall from heaven and judge all of the wickedness and all of the filthiness in this world. But before that, you're preparing your bride, you're preparing your church. God, we want to be a part of that. We want to be prepared, we want to be ready. Help us to listen to the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God bless each one tonight. Keep us as the apple of your eye. Keep us by the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.